morning, good morning, good morning. It's so good to be with you guys. We're going to be in Acts 7 today. As I mentioned, I am Steve Grace. I'm one of the pastors here who serve and love Jesus by serving and loving his church, which includes us all. It's a great thing. It's a great and glorious thing. So thank you for being here. So we are uh, in the middle of a study, or actually the beginning of a study of the New Testament book of Acts. And as I just mentioned, we are going to be in Acts chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, pull that out. We're going to cover that whole chapter today. We're going to read every word out loud. (laughs) Every word. No, actually, no. That's not true. (laughs) However, in order to uh, remind us where we've been and where we're going, take a look at this slide here, because we have been in this Acts, in Acts 7, or pardon me, in the book of Acts for some time. And this quote from Dr. Jones, Lloyd-Jones, I think, gives us a good understanding of where we're at and what we've seen so far. The church has had to fight for her life from the very beginning. We have seen how the apostles were arrested and thrown into prison and how they were threatened and how they were commanded to stop preaching. And from the moment it was born, the church has faced a world that has done everything it could to exterminate Christianity. Two weeks ago, our friend Dr. Swoboda, A.J. Swoboda, was here, and he taught us about the early church and how the early church responded to caring for widows by selecting and commissioning deacons. We were introduced to seven deacons, but specifically focused on Stephen and how the Holy Spirit worked through his service and through his teaching in miraculous ways. Last week, Pastor Billy emphasized the beauty and necessity of servant leadership as exemplified by Jesus and by Stephen. Billy also taught us about the persecuted church and that since the inception of the church, an estimated 70 million Christians have been martyred, 70 million. He challenged us to deliberately and consistently pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering because of their faith in Jesus. Today's study brings us another example of how the church fought for its existence and recounts the story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Now, Acts is actually a book of sermons. There's a lot of, a lot of sermons that are recorded in Acts, but in Acts 7, we see the longest sermon. And so when I became aware of this, I asked Billy, I say, Billy, uh, since that's the longest sermon in the book of Acts, does that mean that I can preach the longest sermon in our Acts teaching series? And he said, sure, go for it. And then he and Christy left for vacation. (laughs) So so as I mentioned, our study today will center on Acts 7. Now, to start, I want to bring us, I want to read you what I call the Steve Grace paraphrase of the last part of Acts 6. I think what this will do is it will set the stage for the rest of our time together. So I invite you just to take a moment, take a deep breath. I will too, I promise. And relax for a moment and just listen to this paraphrase that I think, that I know, will help bring us to the beginning of our study for today. The day was brimming with hope and promise. There was a morning time of worship and prayer and teaching and fellowship with brothers and sisters in Solomon's portico. Peter's encouragement was especially helpful as he emphasized the grace, truth, and glory of the resurrected Jesus. The encouragement of the apostles and others who had seen the resurrected Lord instilled confident joy in Stephen's heart. Stephen was honored to be a deacon in the church. 
he was astonished at the signs and wonders the Lord performed through him. As the morning visitations progressed, he noticed a few men began to follow him and whisper to one another. He had noticed opposition before, but today was different. The men began as a small rabble, but their numbers increased and they started to follow him. The group included former slaves from Cyrene and Alexandria and Cilicia and Asia. These men all attended the freedmen synagogue. And Stephen had known some of them as brothers, but since he became a follower of Jesus, one who was a member of the way, this all changed. These men incited others, and as they encircled him, they fed off each other, hurling accusations and lies at him. Emboldened by the Holy Spirit, Stephen responded in such a way that it left them dumbfounded. They had no response. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. But still undaunted and intent on permanently silencing him, they secretly advanced men who claimed, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. It's a startling claim that could lead to his death. Pressing further, they riled up the people, the elders, and the scribes, and they leapt upon him, seizing him. They brought him before the council. And then they brought forth false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this place, that would be the temple, and change the customs and the laws that Moses delivered to us. These two were charges worthy of death in Jewish law. The council atmosphere grew thick and heavy. It didn't matter if the charges were lies. The truth would not stand in the way. In their words, they had determined he was guilty. And this was not a trial. This would be premeditated murder. So Stephen stood alone, surrounded by his accusers. But something was different. Others... Others who had come before the council, they would cower and they would shrink. And How could it be that he appeared as one with the face of an angel, steadfast and resolute and composed in the face of all these false accusations? Didn't this man know his life was on the line? Perhaps Peter had prepared Stephen by warning him, Stephen, Stephen, keep mindful, be watchful. Our adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, Stephen. Resist him. Be firm. Be firm in the faith. Always steadfast in the faith. Caiaphas, the high priest, the very one who presided over Jesus' trial, he stood, silenced the crowd. And he glared at Stephen and he asked, are these things so? Is it true that you teach that the temple is obsolete and that the law of Moses given to us by God cannot be obeyed? And the room erupted in outrage at the charges then settled into silence as they waited for Stephen's reply. Then Caiaphas insisted once more, are these things so? And with this paraphrase review of Acts 6, it brings us to where we are now. 
beginning of Acts chapter 7, we see that Stephen is now in the custody of the Jewish council. And he's about to stand trial for charges brought against him by false witnesses. These charges, as I mentioned in our paraphrase, could lead to Stephen's death. Now, Albert Moeller shows us in this slide exactly a succinct of what's going on with Stephen. Stephen was accused of speaking against two sacred aspects of the first century Jewish life, the law and the temple. There were no more grievous charges to lay against a Jew, a Jew than that. So we're essentially two charges brought against him by these false, false witnesses. And they are this, speaking against the law of Moses and God and speaking against the temple. Now, here's Stephen. It's another day, he's serving. He's minding his own business. He's in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, he's thrust into a situation that he wasn't even prepared for. However, God had prepared him, as we see, because he's going to put together a brilliant defense. But he's recognizing that they are accusing him of, um, of these charges. And so he has to build a defense that says, to show why the law of Moses cannot bring salvation. And the other charges he needs to defend is, and to show is why the temple in Jerusalem is not the exclusive place to worship or to meet God. Those are the two things he has to do. And by the power of the Spirit of God, he builds a defense. As I mentioned earlier, Stephen's speech in verses 2 through 50 is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And in these verses, he refers to specific events in the lives of Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and he gives some history regarding the temple. Stephen is addressing a Jewish audience, so when he is quoting scripture from Genesis, Exodus, and Isaiah, they, those texts are all very familiar with those texts. These people are all very familiar with these texts, his audience. It's similar to how we share a common understanding of our identity as Americans when somebody talks about maybe a great uh, moment in our history, something from the Revolutionary War or a figure like George Washington or, or Thomas Jefferson or somebody that we're all kind of familiar with. Except for the Jewish people, this was not just necessarily a fact of, a fact of history. This was their identity. It's what they were basing their righteousness on as being descendants of these people, of these men. So the challenge we have before us is to understand how there can be such a difference between how Stephen and his accusers interpret these Old Testament events. Because it's very, very different. They're looking at the same scriptures, but they're coming to different conclusions. So Stephen is about to present these historic figures and their interaction and how they interacted with God and in a whole new way. And so what is that way? That way is it is all through the lens of Jesus. It's all through what Christ has fulfilled. It's all what he has done. Their interactions with God all point to the eventual arrival and fulfillment of all these things, the law and the temple in Jesus. The call of Abraham, Joseph's betrayal of his brothers, taken as a slave into Egypt, Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai, the Israelites 
persistent sinning in the wilderness, the temple, the sacrifices, all of these point to Christ. All of them point to Jesus. And this was contrary to the Jewish ruling class's dominant perspective. These Old Testament narratives are likely not as familiar to us as those with the Jewish heritage. So this presents yet another challenge for us to understand Stephen's defense. To understand the pushback against Stephen, it is necessary for us to be aware of the significance of the law and the temple at that time. The law was the basis of authority and power by the Sadducees and Pharisees, the Jewish ruling class. Now, these were religious and political parties who disagreed with interpretations of the law and religious matters, but they were united in squashing any threat to the law and thus to their power. Now, I know it's difficult for us to imagine discourse and disagreement between political parties, but do the best you can, okay? This is what's going on there. This is a real thing, and this is going on between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and there's a lot of tension going on there, but still, they were united that anything that was a threat to their power had to be squashed. Likewise, as with threats to the law, to speak against the temple was to challenge a core tenet of the collective Jewish worldview at that time, which was that in order to meet with God, one had to go to the temple. Anyone teaching others to disobey or disregard the law or to denigrate the temple was seen as a threat, and they must be destroyed. Now, as I mentioned, there is a lot in, uh, in 2 through 50 and, w- and what Stephen has brought for his defense and in his argument. And we're not going to read that all because there's a lot there. But one of the things that strikes you is you turn the page from, from go from chapter 6 to chapter 7, and Stephen is, at, is under Caiaphas' charge to, are these things so? So Stephen launches off into something, and when I first started reading this, I'm going, I don't, I don't think he answered the question. So I don't get it. I, don't, I mean, because he's just, he's got his life, he's talking about Abraham, he's talking about Joseph, he's off going down line by line by line, and I'm like, I, um, and then pretty soon he lets them have it, Okay. <laughs> So, but it's actually brilliant, and it's Holy Spirit-inspired, of course. So, what I want to do is this portion of where we're at. If you would bear with me and look in Scripture with you, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take verses 2 through 50 in four chunks. Four chunks, that's just laid out there. And... These chunks will help us to understand Stephen's argument, and I think you'll see why the the council gets so upset. The first reference I want to look at is verses 2 to 8. Verses 2 to 8. You see, here he's talking about Abraham, and that's a period of time from Abraham to the patriarchs. And he builds this into his response for the council to hear, and he says this. He says, long before, this is the essence of it, long before there was a holy place or a temple, God visited Abraham in a pagan land and sent him out. He finally brought him into the land of Israel, but, you know, Abraham never got any real estate in Israel. He never even received a foot of ground, verse 5 says. So what's the point? Here, Stephen is saying, God is not contained within a temple or a holy place. So the temple and the land and the geographic center of what you think is so important isn't so important. In the next block... Stephen turns our attention to Joseph, to the Exodus. This is verses 9 through 19. And here we're reminded that Joseph was sold into slavery in a pagan land, but again, God was with him. How can that be? He's in a pagan land. 
He's not in Israel. He's not in Palestine. How'd that happen? Well, of course, God was with him. What he's saying is that God cannot be contained by our human expectations. And that even though Joseph was sold into slavery and was taken into pagan land, look what a holy God did and he was with him. The next set of verses, 20 through 43, comprises the biggest section of Stephen's argument, and it covers Moses and the wilderness wanderings, and it has portions of defense in there about the temple and the law. So remember, he's trying to say why the temple uh, is not the only place you can meet God and why the law is obsolete. Okay, you can't earn favor with the law. So he brings it up. He says, God comes to Moses on holy ground. And he's outside of Palestine. Stephen shows that from the very beginning, Israel has failed to obey the law. He also provides a quote from Amos, a, new, uh, uh, a northern kingdom prophet, who calls them back and says to, warns Israel about their complacency and their idolatry and their oppression. Now, it's difficult for us to understand how this is building, but, we have, but in the minds of his, his accusers, he's laying it on thick, point after point after point after point. You think that these places and what you're charging me against, you, and you're using God's rule for this, but the point is that God is not bound by that. Wherever God is, is holy ground. It's not in a temple, and it's not by obeying your law. And lastly, verses 44 through 50, it covers the history of the tabernacle and the temple from Moses to David and through Solomon. And he explains to them, hey, you know what? When Moses built the tabernacle, when he built that, it was only an image and a pattern of what he saw on Mount Sinai and what God gave him. Then when Solomon finally built a house for God, God warned that he was not actually confined to any house made by men. And then Stephen goes on to cite portions of Isaiah 66, one through two, to show that God is not confined to Israel and thus the temple is obsolete. Okay? There's his case. That's his defense. That's what he brings to the council. So at the end of this, it's refuted. Stephen definitely shows the council why the temple in Jerusalem is not the exclusive place to meet God and why the law of Moses cannot bring salvation. Here's a quote from John Stott that I think will help us. This shows us what Jesus taught about the temple and the law. What Jesus taught then was that the temple and the law would not be superseded. That they would find their God-intended fulfillment in who? In Christ. In Jesus. Jesus was the replacement of the temple and the fulfillment of the law. Amen. So even though Stott is referring to Jesus' teaching, this provides a fitting synopsis as to how the law and the temple fit into God's redemptive plan and also how Stephen used it in his argument. So these principles are supported throughout the New Testament. Here are some verses that refer to the law and to the temple. The first one I would like to look at is from Paul, a letter to the Galatians, where he states this. So what is the place of the law in a believer's life? That's the question before us. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ 
and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. See, what we're trying to get here, what we're trying to understand here in the life of a person, any person, Jewish or Gentile, whatever you are, is how does one become righteous? How, how, can, how can I know that the sins that I've committed, that somehow that I can do something or incorporate something that will, will set me free from that and, and make me right with God? For the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it was personal effort and it was keeping of the law. It was adherence to temple worship and these sorts of things. And, Jesus, and Stephen sees this entirely different now because of Christ, because of what Jesus has done. And not only because of what he's done, because he's resurrected and Jesus is alive. This is a very real, present thing that God has been so kind to capture for us in his word that we too can incorporate in our own lives. Another verse from Galatians, chapter three, verses 10 through 11, helps us to see this about the law and, and the place of the law in a believer's life. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. It's impossible to do them. Nobody can keep the law because we were in, born in sin. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for how will the righteous live? The righteous will live by faith. Faith in what? Or who? Yeah. That's really the question. You can have faith in a what. This is what I do. But we need to have faith in a who. Who do we have faith in? The one, the righteous one. Turning our attention to the temple, we see in John 2, 18 through 22, how Jesus regards his interactions with the temple. He, he has this, uh, uh, these interactions, and before this, right before this in verses 13 through 17, Jesus has confronted the, uh, those in the temple who were the money changers. Those, you remember this, this account where Jesus is, and he comes in with a cord, and he's chasing them out, and he's righteously angry at the fact that there are systems in the temple that are set up and they're keeping people from God. And, they're, and, they're, and he's just angry. He charges and throws them out. And so we pick it up here where the Jews come to him. And so the Jews said to him, and we have a slide for this, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, Confronting Jesus, helps us to understand further the relationship of Jesus in the temple. You see, Jesus' hearers thought his body was contained in the temple or by the temple. But actually, the temple was contained in Jesus' body. Jesus is the place where God's glory dwells, the place where we can meet God himself. He is the sacrifice who gave us, who gave his life so that we could live. So these verses give us a taste of how the New Testament teaches us that Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law and was the more perfect temple. 
It also reflects on Stephen's defense to the council's accusations, and they were, he was right on target. We've been looking at how Stephen responded to persecution, and I wonder, I have a question for you. Have you ever felt persecuted for your faith? You see, the more we walk in the footsteps of Christ, the more we will find that we will encounter the same hostility and persecution that Christ himself encountered. Now, two occasions come to mind that I want to share with you this morning, and they certainly don't rise to the level of what we're seeing here in Stephen's life, but I think they represent what's more likely and maybe what is more in common with what you might have experienced too. The first one is this, is that after a pleasant meal with our hosts, Val and my wife and, and I were involved in a conversation in which our host spent the rest of the evening trying to convince us that all God required of us of people to be righteous was to be a good person. Just be a good person. This conversation took place eight years ago, and I remember it like it was was yesterday. No sense in getting tangled up in all this religious stuff. This was pretty much a one-sided conversation, and, uh, and it took us by surprise, and I managed to ask, well, then if... That is all that's needed. Well, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? What did that have to, what, what was that all about? And to the best of my knowledge, our hosts remain confident that their subjective morality is adequate to merit eternal life and are confident that we take this religious stuff far too seriously. See, they're placing their confidence in a what? And we place our confidence in Who? The only one, the righteous one. Another occasion occurred when I was serving as a C-130 aircraft navigator and we were conducting drug patrols off the coast of uh, Central America. This was a long time ago. (laughs) But nonetheless, I can still remember it pretty clearly too. So when you're doing patrols, in addition to making sure the plane stays in the air and you know where you're at, which is two very important things when you're flying, uh, there's, there's conversation that takes place between the crew uh, as the mission progresses. So out of the blue, that's a good aviation thing. Anyway, so out of the blue, someone, 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 I just saw that. Someone, someone asked me, hey, Grace, I hear you just became a Christian. I was young in the Christian faith, and I had recently been baptized. I was about 24 years old. Maybe 25, somewhere on there. Previous encounters with these guys had proven that they were hostile to Christianity, and evidently the news had gotten out about my baptism and my convictions. And I said, yeah, I sure am, I sure am, I did. And I tried to keep my eyes on my navigation chart and make sure that I was paying attention that way. But my reply opened the door for their unsolicited, profanity-ridden opinions. I'll leave out the profanity part. But it went something like this. Hey, you know what, man, religion is a crutch. It's too bad you're so weak that you need that. Man, I can't believe that. So, hey, Grace, you believe in Genesis, right? So, well, yeah. so if the Bible is true, where did Cain and Abel get their wives? I don't know how anyone can believe that stuff. And someone else chimed in. I used to go to church. All they want is your money. So I'm not going anymore. 
Frankly, these were remarks from an uneducated group of guys who really did not want to be held accountable to God. Still, it was startling and unexpected and in many ways cutting and unkind. I said, well, I replied, I, I believe the Bible is true and it's helped me in more ways than I can describe and you guys should read it. <laughs> but this is one of those occasions where, you know, have you, are you guys like me? It's like where you're like, you're taken by surprise by something and about an hour later or maybe the next day, you go like, oh, I should have said that. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, gosh, that would have been good. I could have said that. Oh, man, I should have. But we trust these things in the Lord's hands. So as my time at the station progressed, more disapproving remarks would surface and additional uncomfortable encounters would occur. About 19 years after I left the military, one of the guys I served with at that station, who was also my roommate for a time, he had witnessed these interactions and he contacted me through the wonders of Facebook. And he contacted me to tell me that he had become a Christian and that he was actually moving to Ohio to plant a church. He was present in many of those interactions at that time. As a matter of fact, I think he even participated in some of those interactions at that time. It was kind of the Lord to bring him back into my life. It helped bring healing for a difficult period. But even better, even better, it brought such joy to know that my friend Stan came to know Jesus and was saved. This is, uh, we have a, uh, <laughs> this is the mustache gang. Right? I think we all have mustaches. Um, you guys pick me out back there? I still have the same ears. I don't have the mustache. I have a little less hair. Uh, third from the left, third from the left, that's me in the back row. And my friend Stan, who Val knows very well, actually, we know them pretty well, is the guy right on my left shoulder in the front. And uh, that, was our, that was our NAB school uh, graduation picture in Mobile, Alabama. And so, um, so here we are. This is the before, and here's the after. All right? Look what... <laughs> Look what the years do, right? Look at that. Look what happened there. All right? Lots of wrinkles, but uh, I'm just honored. Stan and his wife, Heidi, are uh, believers. They're raising their children as believers. Um, he loves the Lord. Man, you guys, grace rewrote our stories. Grace rewrote our stories. It's an amazing thing. Now, this is not about, thank you for indulging me with these pictures. This is not about me. It really is not about me. This is about God and what God did. I never expected anything. And you never know who you're influencing in your life. So stand fast. Stand fast. Stay true. Stay true to the word. Because God, people are watching. And even if you don't do it perfectly, just remain faithful. God will work. God will work. And certainly my experience does not rise to the level of persecution that we will see that Stephen experienced, but it does represent what I think are, we all are most likely to experience. So what do we do when persecution comes our way? Here's two learning points, and you have these in your notes. So no matter its form or intensity or source, Persecution typically arrives unannounced. You just don't know when it's coming. Okay? And that when it does come, 
what our best defense is to counter the persecution is by responding with the word of God. Now, these verses that are here are meant to help us, support us. Please take some time this week, ponder these, think on these, read on these things. It is important for us to continually renew our minds with God's word. If we're not doing that, we will be unarmed and we will not be ready when that persecution unexpectedly comes. Now, let's take a look at the persecution Stephen experienced. Stephen's defense culminates in a scathing indictment against his accusers. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and God's word, the one being prosecuted now becomes the prosecutor. And building through that old argument of all those verses, Stephen hits an apex and he brings a blistering rebuke in Acts 51 through 53 where he charges them and he says, you stiff-necked people. You're uncircumcised in your heart and your ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen confronts them with the truth and the weight of God's redemptive plan, and he does this to lovingly confront them. All of what he says is truthful, and it hits his listeners right between the eyes. Now, it's important for us to realize that Stephen's words are not spoken in vicious anger. As I said, he's lovingly confronting them. Albert Moeller helps us understand this a little bit more when he says this. Though he indicts those listening, Stephen's argument, it indicts them. It brings them to truth. It shows them their guilt. And so they're indicted by this. It's very important for us to note that this was not an ad hominem argument. In other words, he's not attacking, this is an attack against their, their, them as people. Stephen was not accusing the accusers for accusation's sake. He was taking this opportunity to preach the gospel to them by demonstrating how the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Christ. How the redemptive purposes of God found their high point in the atoning work of the Lord Jesus, the righteous one. By demonstrating how they had misunderstood the Old Testament, Stephen is calling the crowd to trust in Jesus, to trust in a who, not in a what. Amen. See, grace and truth were presented to all who were listening, but as some do when they hear the gospel, we'll see that they refuse to listen. In verse 54. Hearing these stinging words, the accusers become enraged. They ground their teeth at him. They plugged their ears and they rushed at him. Forget the trial, let the execution begin. But Stephen, remaining filled with the Holy Spirit in the midst of the anger and chaos, has shown a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And there is Jesus standing in reaction to Stephen's persecution. In scripture, we see Jesus depicted as seated at the right hand of God. We see him as one who will arrive on a horse to bring judgment. We see him even kneeling in service to others. But here we see him standing in concern and care. One commentator says that Jesus, he sees Jesus standing in order to plead Stephen's case before the Father. Another explained that Jesus is standing as a friend who would stand and welcome someone into his home. I think it's yes and. I think these, are all, these all work. 
See, yes, Jesus stands in concern. Yes, he stands in Stephen's defense. And yes, he stands to welcome Stephen home. Recall Jesus' teaching. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. In keeping with that promise, as Stephen is rejected by earthly courts, he finds Jesus acting as an advocate and testifying on his behalf. Stephen was about to feel the embrace and hear, to feel Jesus' embrace and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Here's some more points for us to consider when we're talking about persecution. In the midst of persecution, this is what we are to do. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus. In the midst of any trial, that's what we are to do. Because our hope transcends this life. The circumstances of our life, this is not it. Our hope is past this, and, and the thing that we need to do is to fix our eyes on Christ. Also remember that we have an advocate, one who stands before the Father on our behalf what a glorious thing. Remember this too, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. For those uh, who have been called according to his purpose. Romans eight twenty eight. So no matter what comes into our life, we have to recognize and be able to have a trust level in God that even though there are things that occur and in all of our lives things will occur that we do not like or we do not ask for and that we feel is unjust but we have faith in a God who says, I am so big, I am so great, I am so loving that I can take these things that are hurting you and I can make them and use them for good. Look what Stephen is facing. And lastly, living fearlessly in Christ strengthens others to live fearlessly in Christ. People are watching. Do the best you can. Cling to Christ. It's not about us. It's about a who. Stephen's executioners are enraged and they rush at him and they're yelling loudly and they're refusing to hear and, and they're united in their fury and they grabbed him and they wrestled him out of the city to stone him to death a stoning is a brutal way to die I say is because some cultures still use stoning as a means of capital punishment did you know that? The person to be executed is shoved off a cliff and into a deep pit or into a deep pit. And the person who does the shoving is the condemning witness. Can you imagine being the condemning witness who just lied against this man and now you're about ready to start his execution? If being pushed off the cliff or thrown into the pit didn't kill you, the other witness would stand and take a stone, he'd take a large stone, and he'd take it and he would throw it down on the person. It would land on his chest. And if that didn't kill him, others would join him in the accusing crowd. Historians tell us that the entire process can take anywhere from 20 minutes to two hours. Although I don't know how anybody could survive that for two hours. 
Verse 58 tells us, and the witnesses, these are the men who were heaving the stones upon an innocent man. They were eager to take off their garments and they had to get free. And they took their garments and they looked at the man and they laid him at his feet. And that man's name was Saul. It says that Saul heartily approved of all that was taking place. Hey, Saul, watch my coat. I gotta go, I gotta, we're gonna go stone this guy. I'll be back in a minute. So Luke interviewed a lot of people to write the gospel, his gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And one of the people he journeyed with was Paul, arguably the greatest Christian figure in church history besides Jesus. Paul used to be named Saul. Or if you wanna go the other way, Saul will have his name changed to Paul. In an ironic, ironic turn of events, God would arrest Saul, change his name to Paul, and through great suffering and hardship, use Paul in amazing ways for the expansion of the church. Can you imagine Luke walking and talking with Paul as they're taking the gospel about? And, and he asked him, he said, Paul, what was going through your mind when you watched Stephen being stoned to death and, and you heartily approved We'll learn more about Saul and Paul in the coming weeks, so make sure you keep coming back. It's an amazing, amazing true story of what God has done to establish his church. But how loving of God to give Stephen a glimpse of glory in the midst of such a barbaric death. Christ himself rising to his defense. Verse 59 and 60 say this, and as they were stoning Stephen, as the stones were landing on him, He's in communion with Christ and he calls out to him, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. This isn't the end of me. I'm coming to you. And falling to his knees as the stones are cascading along him and around him, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep and into the arms of Jesus. Two closing thoughts. It's natural for us to think of Stephen as a victim. But as mentioned earlier, God's ways are not our ways. God is going to move for his purposes in ways that don't make sense to us. It's our job just to trust and to understand. I'm not saying it's easy. There's lots of things that a lot, many of us have had to trust that we do not understand that were definitely not easy. But the arms that support us, the love that supports us is there and it will not fail and it transcends this life. In future studies, we're gonna see how the death of Stephen was a catalyst for widespread persecution and how it moved, made the church get out of Jerusalem and take the good news of Jesus to the entire world. You see, God, our God, will finish what he started. And yet, there's still one more tragedy we need to look at before we end. There is another tragedy for us to reflect on. Those attending the trial heard the testimony of a faithful, eloquent, courageous man, a man who presented how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies and law and showed that going to the temple was no longer necessary to gain righteousness. And that Jesus is the only way he is the truth, and he is the only life that is able to save. 
You see, it is not by adherence to the law or dedication to a building or going to a geographic location or adherence to a religious life. It is to see and receive God's gift of eternal life through his son. That's how we get our righteousness. God provides it. He provides it through Christ. He gives it to us as a free gift. Take the gift. How tragic it would be if someone here today made the same choice as the Sadducees and those in the council. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to believe it. I want to stay in my own wrong thinking. I want to stay in my own dysfunction. And to hear of a salvation that is so great and so loving and so encompassing and is so complete and is so perfect and is so eternal that we would choose to walk away? Maybe even it's like, ah, this is all nonsense. Lord, I pray. Lord, save us. Lord, let that not be the case today. And these things in Christ we pray. Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time. We thank you to be here, Lord, and to share this time in the word. We're very grateful, Father, how you give us your word and how you protect us. Father, I pray for each one here that all of us will face persecution of some kind. Help us to remember Stephen. Help us remember the power of the Holy Spirit, but help us most of all, Lord, to know that you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. We are yours, and we are bound for eternity with you. We ask these things in Christ's name.